over the years and from various places, I had heard about this pastor uh, who lived in the 19th century whose name was Alexander White. And I'd heard uh, about him as an illustration in a couple of different contexts from other preachers because he was notorious. Uh, perhaps he had a great ministry, I don't know, but he's notorious for one thing. Whenever a new commentary would come out on the book of Romans, he had an agreement with his bookseller that a copy would be set aside, he would be able to flip to one text, and depending on what that text was, either keep it or send it back. That text was Romans 14 through 25. Uh, on, for those of you that read a lot of Roman studies, you know that's a little bit controversial on which way it can go. Is Paul talking about himself as a Christian? Is he talking about himself as a lost person? Or is he talking about people in general as he struggles with sin? And whether or not Alexander White found that the commentary agreed with his view, he would send it back or he would keep it. Now think about that. One passage, just a few verses, and an entirety of biblical scholarship in that volume on all the other verses of the rest of the 15 and a half chapters. Perhaps years of a man's life were rejected based on his views in just one paragraph. Well, that's wrong for a couple of reasons. Number one, no one passage can bear that kind of weight from the biblical text. There's no one text that is so important if you don't get it just right. We're not even talking unorthodox, heretical, just not particularly right according to this guy's views, that then you cast off the whole ministry or the whole book. Secondly, you don't do that because what you often do is miss the bigger point of the text. And in fact, when we come to what we're going to look at this morning in Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, this often becomes one of those Rubicon texts whereby people are divided. Not just in two ways, not just in three ways, but at least in ten different ways on the exact meaning of these verses. And what I want to do this morning, if you have an idea about what this means, if you've thought about this before, if you said it, I, I want you to, to not miss the forest for the trees. When we get to those crucial texts that, upon which we may not agree, I don't want you to miss the main theme of this text, which is highlighting the faithfulness of God to make promises about saving his people and keeping those promises in exact detail. What we see here is the promised restoration of God's people Israel, the fullness of their return from exile. And the reason why we should take an interest in that today is because in promising that restoration, he promises not just to restore Israel back to him as his people, he promises to bring in a large number of people beyond just the people of Israel, people like you and me, saving them according to the faithfulness of his promises. And so today, uh, though uh, certainly we would want to highlight this uh, for any of uh, the Jewish people today, we also as Gentiles want to see the great affection and love that is displayed for sinners in this text from God as he displays his faithfulness to his promises. So I invite you to follow along as I read beginning at verse 20 of Daniel chapter 9. You'll remember that the first 19 verses, Daniel has been praying. He has told us what he has prayed. And then verse 20, he says this, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God from the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, 
whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. May God bless the reading of his word. Throughout these verses, particularly as we stand where we are today, in our context, looking back across a sweep of history, one theme rings out among these verses, and that is this, the faithfulness of God. This is a precious truth that is unfolded along three lines this morning in our text as we see God answering Daniel's prayer and unveiling his sovereign decree to provide salvation for his people. And so these are the things that we want to look at this morning. And as we seek to, to unravel the threefold, threefold cord of God's faithfulness here, we begin with this first thing, and that is this. We see the person who draws God's attention. We see the person who draws God's attention. You know, last week we used verses 1 through 19 to describe not only what Daniel's prayer life was, but what our prayer life should be, what it should look like before God. And we argued strongly that prayer was meant to be an important part of the Christian life and that all of us should probably be praying more than we should and differently than we are. On the flip side of that, it's important that we understand that when we pray, someone is listening. That when we actually call out to God, He is hearing us. Our prayers are not vain words bouncing off the ceiling as quick as we lift them up. On the contrary, there is a God who hears our prayers and who answers them. In fact, Gabriel tells Daniel that heaven was listening and an answer was made ready at the beginning of your pleas for mercy. Gabriel tells Daniel, from the moment you started praying, God had prepared a word and was sending out the answer for the very thing that you were asking. And we are certainly reminded of Jesus' words, don't we, about confidence in prayer. He says, your heavenly Father knows what you need before you even ask. As we saw last week, the kind of prayer that Daniel offered to God, we begin now by seeing the kind of man that offered the prayer. That is to say, we want to see in Daniel the kind of person who offered a prayer that would have attracted so much attention from God. And such a consideration begins by observing that when the angel Gabriel arrives, he says he comes with an answer to Daniel's prayer because, verse 23, he is greatly loved in heaven. Now, can you imagine that? Can you imagine being told, 
I've come to answer your prayer to tell you what the answer is going to be because you are greatly loved in heaven. That's clear for our text this morning why such a thing could have been said of Daniel. Perhaps you didn't notice when we read, but did you notice when Daniel was praying? He says it in almost an offhanded way, and we're tempted to pass by it. But listen again to verse 21. While I was speaking in prayer at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, if you have been reading with Daniel up to this point, that should cause you to kind of pull the emergency brake and say, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How am I supposed to understand that? Because remember, he has been in exile now for 70 years, 70 years since Jerusalem was ransacked. It was raised to the ground and the temple destroyed. There is no evening sacrifice anymore. There is no offering being offered by the Levitical high priests. The, the, the way of life that was established for worship in Israel, for making sinful people right with God, has been done away with for these past 70 years. And yet Daniel says, I was praying about the time of the evening sacrifice. What are we to make of this? I think we are to make this. He's still living before God according to the covenant purposes of Israel. Though only 14 when he left. Maybe 15, maybe 16. As a young man, though, God's hand was already upon him and had already been gripping Daniel's young heart so that the rhythm and flow of covenant life with God, a life of faith in that God, morning and evening sacrifices, meals celebrating the Day of Atonement and Feast of Booths and so many other things, they were essential to Daniel in knowing this is how I am to relate to God because this is what he has promised to do. This is how he has saved us. This is how he makes us to be our people. And therefore, even when no sacrifices are being made, when Daniel is not even near Jerusalem, it is nevertheless at the time of the evening sacrifice when Daniel turns his face toward the east and gets down on his face and prays to God. He is living a Godward life on God's terms. As Sinclair Ferguson says, Daniel was loved in heaven because he lived for God. It's no surprise then to hear that Daniel is greatly loved in heaven. But I wonder when you hear that, does it, are you tempted to squirm a little bit? Do you rejoice for Daniel and delight in such a man who is an example to us today? Or do you begin to think, I doubt that said of me in heaven. I doubt if the angel Gabriel would stand before me, he would say, you are greatly loved in heaven. And that is why I'm here so quickly to answer your prayers. You may think on one level that God feels that way about everybody. Everybody is greatly loved by God. And on one level, you would be right. There is a sense in which God loves all of his people, all of his elect, called according to his gracious purposes in the same way. In fact, he has loved us to such an extent that one can hardly take it in. Though in open rebellion against our creator and our king, God gives his people salvation instead of judgment. Though our sin is abhorrent and offensive to God in ways we will never understand because God is in his very nature, at the core of who he is, transcendently holy and without sin, he shows us mercy. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians that it is a great love with which God loved us and sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. God's love extends toward us who deserve judgment 
in such a way that Christ receives the stroke instead of us. He drinks down death like water, filling the fullness of God's wrath so that we might taste the waters of everlasting life. That is the way that God shows love to each and every one of his people. And in that way, he loves all of us the same. But at the same time, God is not monolithic in his love any more than we are. The Bible tells us that beyond our adoption as his children, experiencing his saving love equally, there are those in whom God takes special delight. And we see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 5. There we see a man named Enoch who we are told walked so closely with God, he was on such intimate terms with him that one day he was walking with God and the next day he was not alive. And the impression that you are left with is that God so loved him. God so cherished the devotion and the faith and the love expressed from Enoch to himself. He said, Enoch, man, why are we waiting for the grave? Just come and be with me now. Just be in my presence. Experience the fullness of the joy of my glory now. And so Enoch is literally walking with God. In one sense, praying before him is how that that phrase is used elsewhere. And suddenly he's gone. Can you imagine looking across the plain, seeing the footprints in the sand, and suddenly there is nothing? He is just immediately translated into the presence of God. Why? Why does it happen to all of us? Because Enoch walked with God in a special way. He so loved God that it moved God to love Enoch in a special way. Furthermore, we are told in the Bible that though we are loved by God in Christ, there are ways to hinder or damage the relationship that we have with him because of our ongoing sin. Again, this does not impede his love for us in Christ, his saving, redeeming love, but it hinders our how we relate to him as father and son so in ephesians 4 paul can say do not grieve the holy spirit of god that is as a child of god do not cause god to be sorrowed by an open and ongoing life of sin do not take for granted the love that you've been shown in christ and so fail relationally to love back your heavenly father by being trite with sin by saying it doesn't matter i'm forgiven Jude is even more direct as he closes his letter to telling Christians, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now in the very next verse, he says, God is the one who keeps you for all eternity. So he's not speaking of salvific love. He means on top of the, the love that establishes our relationship with God, there is an overflowing of love that deepens our relationship with God. So that on the salvation level, we are firm and secure and nothing can change that. But above and beyond, do you know God? Do you increase in your knowledge and affection for him? In that way, God's affection increases for us as well. How do you do this? How do you cultivate the kind of love that Daniel had for God? So that when he prayed, heaven rejoiced to hear his voice. How do you cultivate the kind of love for God and therefore God for you that is displayed here? How do you cultivate a life of love that is built upon the foundational saving love of God and Christ that will never change? It's actually Christ who tells us. In John 14, he says, whoever has my commandments and keep them, keeps them, he it is who loves me. 
And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him, and we will make our home with him. And it's on the basis of that truth that he goes on to tell the disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask, and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Now why? How can he make that promise? How can he make that promise? I mean, how many of you have ever prayed for something and it did not come? The person was not healed. The car was not fixed. The bill did not go away. And yet, what does Jesus say here? Whatever we ask, we'll receive. That the crucial thing comes is that we are asking it in the name of Christ. That does not mean that we just throw it on a tagline like it's, a, like it's an enchantment. If I say the prayer, it doesn't matter what I say, as long as I put it in Jesus' name at the end, and then it works. That's pagan prayer. That's not Christian prayer. Praying in Jesus' name means I will pray in such a way that Jesus' name is honored. I am praying for the kind of things Jesus himself would pray for. I am praying for the kind of things that would magnify him and lift him up and show that I desire to not only hear his commands, but keep them out of my love for God. When we pray that way, then the prayer and desires of our heart will actually be the desires of the Father's heart. And therefore, he will answer the prayers that we give to him. So at the end of James' letter, we read this. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Though Elijah is mentioned, we could also just as easily think of Daniel here. Here was a righteous person whose prayer had great power before God. And yet we remember what James also says. He is a man just like us. There's nothing special intrinsically about Daniel. He is a man. He is a man who has lived a long life. He is flesh and blood, and bone, and he died and was buried in a grave. And one day, like us, he'll be raised from that grave, incorruptible, unstoppable, in the presence of God's glory forever. But right now, we are not there. We are here. We are just like him in the days of his life. We are flesh and blood and bone. We are man just like him. In fact, only more so, because we have the fullness of the Spirit of God poured out upon us as believers in this new covenant. Therefore, there is nothing to stop us from being a Daniel. There is nothing that would hinder us from loving and walking with God the way Daniel did. And for in turn, experiencing the fresh and glorious blessing of God's love upon us. Even today, there is nothing to stop us from calling out to God for grace to love him more deeply and consistently, for mercy and a fresh filling of his spirit so that we can believe him and keep his commandments so that we might be mighty in prayer and it might be said of us in heaven, you are greatly loved. That is the kind of person that draws God's attention. Let us also consider the promise that comes from God's decree. The promise that comes from God's decree. Daniel says, excuse me, Gabriel says that Daniel needs to understand what is coming. He wants him to understand how God is going to answer the prayer. It's not just he's going to answer it, but here's how he's going to answer it. Daniel has rightly understood that the 70 years promise in Jeremiah was about to come to an end. But what he didn't realize was that's not the extent of the promise. 
there is more to the promise than just 70 years of exile and then a return. In fact, the angel says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. 70 years was only the beginning, Daniel. God desires to do and has decreed to do so much more. His prayers, when you go back and you read the first 19 verses, the prayers are largely concerned with a physical return to the land, of leaving the exile back to Jerusalem. But God says there is also a spiritual return that's going to take place. And that spiritual return isn't going to happen after just 70 years. It's going to take a long, long time, Daniel. You're thinking of 70 years, but God has decreed that 70 weeks are going to take place for the fullness of this spiritual return to be realized. What does God promise to do for his people? Six things according to verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. Here God's decreed a promise of a spiritual return that will take place over 70 weeks. And that decree involves three negative things and three positive things. First, there is the promise to finish the transgression. God's people will no longer live in open rebellion against him. That is what has characterized Israel in their latter days. And God says, we will finish that style of life. Through the ongoing return from exile, God will only bring the people back to the land. He will bring their hearts back to himself. Then there is the promise to put an end to sin. Sin is defined as falling short. It's a failed attempt to meet God's standard. And again, this was characteristic of Israel. Even at their best, they were not what they should have been. And God promises, I'm going to put an end to your failure as my people. Now you will succeed spiritually. Third, there is the promise to atone for iniquity. Well, the first two describe the ceasing, the cessation of sinfulness by the people. Here, God is promising to deal with the consequences of their sin. Rebellion and moral, moral failure do not take place in a vacuum. When we sin, it is in the context of our relationship to God. First and foremost, he has created us. We are his image bearers. So as human beings, when we, do, when we sin, we are defiling the image upon which has been, that has been stamped upon us. We are telling God, though you have rightful control over me, I don't care. I'm going to be in control over me. All the more so now for Israel, who has experienced life not just under God as creator, but as God the redeemer who has brought them out of the land of Egypt. They have transgressed and rebelled against him. And God says he is going to make atonement for all their iniquity. But more than that, he will not just deal with their sin, he will also supply to them what they lack. He will establish them securely as his faithful covenant people. And he will do that, first of all, by bringing in everlasting righteousness. More than a fleeting righteousness, one that is here for a while and then gone and may or may not return, God will establish something permanent among his people. Furthermore, over 70 weeks, he says, he promises to seal both vision and profit. Now, this is seal up not in the sense of put it in a Ziploc baggie so it stays fresh. He's not talking about that kind of seal. He talks about the kind of seal that you put on the back of a letter. It's a seal of authority and vindication. God is saying, I'm going to prove my word true, bringing it to final completion in your midst. 
Lastly, we see there is the promise to anoint a most holy place. Now here even Daniel would be scratching his head. Why? Because in the Old Covenant, not, things are not anointed. You don't anoint things. And he talks about anointing the most holy place. The most holy place is in the temple. It's the heart of the temple where the ark resided, where the glory of God resided above the ark of the covenant. It was where the high priest went once a year to make final atonement for the people. That's never anointed. Things are not anointed. People are anointed. And so what is God saying? He's saying in some way, in some way, person and place are going to come together as I bring final restoration for you, my people, as you return from exile. Now these things would have been precious insights for Daniel. He has seen the devastating effects on Israel, and here is God's promise to reverse those effects, to not cut off his people forever, but to restore them both to the land and to God in heart. And yet how much more precious should those things be for us today? While Daniel could could stand, as it were, kind of on tiptoes, looking forward into the future, what God could do, we stand on the other side looking back with clarity. What was cloudy to Daniel is clear to us and how God is going to reveal the glory of his saving work. For we have seen the glory of God in the face of a man, the man Jesus Christ. As God's new covenant people, we cannot help but see the fulfillment of this decree in his saving work. Christ came to put an end to transgression and sin by dying for sin. In his death on the cross, he makes atonement for all the iniquity of God's people. And through his resurrection, he assures that we have new life and eternal righteousness. Through Christ, God transforms rebels into servants, enemies into friends, slaves to sin, to slaves to righteousness. We who were not a people are now God's people. Furthermore, Christ seals up vision and prophets because he is both the final prophet and the final word that God speaks. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God have their yes and their amen in him. Therefore, in him alone is found the very purpose of God, uniting vision and prophet, message and messenger. Christ is the very embodiment of God's word. In fact, the apostle John says, he is the word made flesh who what? Who tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent. We have dwell. But when you see it in the Greek, you cannot help but think of what? That structure that would become the temple itself. What was once only revealed behind curtain and tent and stone and the temple and tabernacle. Now we have seen, John says, through the very Son of God. That is God's glory and grace. Thus, as the Spirit anointed him for ministry at his baptism, so Christ was the living Holy of Holies. He was the fulfillment of the temple where God and humanity meet, where atonement intercession is made. In Christ, the promised decree of salvation is realized. In him, the fullness of the new covenant is brought to realization. Oh, sinner, look to Christ in faith today. See how God has been faithful to his promises and trust in Jesus as your Savior, the one who lived for you that you might be righteous before God, the one who died for you that your sins might be covered. And oh, dear Christian brother or sister, you also look to Christ in faith. Trust in the promises that have been fulfilled in him. See that God is faithful, therefore live faithful to him. 
seeking to die to sin and live to righteousness. We have seen the person who draws God's attention and the promise that comes from God's decree. Finally, we see the plan that results in God's salvation. The plan that results in God's salvation. In verse 24, we have seen the kind of salvation that God has promised. We have seen what he has decreed to do, but how will it take place? What will the unfolding look like? This is what the last three verses are all about. The angel says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. And here we begin to to enter into difficulties in our passage. If you have an NIV, you will see that in verse 24, it doesn't say 70 weeks. It says 77s are decreed. Why is that? Because the word that we have for week in the ESV is simply a unit of seven. So literally, it's 70 units of seven or 77s. So we've already got to ask ourselves, what, what seven of what? Right? Um, and I think there's a lot of discussion. I think the key comes when you just let the Scripture interpret Scripture, right? And so when we read in the book of Chronicles... We see he's been reading Jeremiah just like Daniel has been reading Jeremiah. In fact, Chronicles is written after Daniel. The author of Chronicles has read Jeremiah, and under the intention of the Holy Spirit, he says this in chapter 36. The king of the Chaldeans took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Why? To fulfill the word of the Lord... By the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. The chronicler is drawing a circle between the prophetic word of Jeremiah's 70 years of exile in a foreign land and the covenant curse from Leviticus 26 that says the land needs to have a year of Sabbath where it lays fallow and for every year israel that you don't let that happen you're going to go into exile so that way the land gets its sabbaths back and chronicles specifically connects these things together so that we can understand i think what is what what is meant here is that we have 70 sabbatical periods. This is the seven sevens. And ultimately, when we look again at the context of the Sabbath, what we see is the ultimate Sabbath, a year of Jubilee. After so many sabbatical years, God has a year of Jubilee, a sabbatical year, and he says, this is the year of grace. Slaves are released from their masters. Debts are erased. Land that was sold reverted back to designated tribes. It was a year of grace given to Israel where effectively everything resets. So that way, things that have happened intentionally and unintentionally by sin, God brings them back to the beginning the way they were. And all of this, I think, is foreshadowing the work of grace that God would do in Jesus the Messiah. It is these 70 sabbatical periods that result in the ultimate Sabbath of Jubilee, the complete and finished grace of Christ that brings us back to where we were supposed to be with God. And so verse 25, Know therefore understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be, and, and to the end there shall be war. 
desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, according to these verses, the period of 70 sabbaticals is divided into three unequal parts. There were seven sabbaticals in which the city of Jerusalem is rebuilt. We see this in Ezra and Nehemiah. And in those books, we can see that while the city and the temple are rebuilt, it's in a troubled time. The work is resisted. And in fact, it's not an untroubled time, even up until Jesus' day. So all that time, yes, the work takes place. But there are desolations, there's wars, there are problems. Then for 62 sabbaticals, there's nothing or noteworthy that takes place um, as the people are existing in the land trying to have their life built back up. But then there is this final 70th sabbatical when a covenant is upheld, offerings and sacrifices are ended, all in connection with extreme sacrilege of the temple and someone who causes desolation. If the word to restore Jerusalem that is mentioned is understood to refer to the decree of Artaxerxes in 457 B.C., which we read about in Nehemiah. He lets him go back and finish building Jerusalem. Then the 69 sabbaticals or weeks of years bring the time to 27 A.D., which is, in some scholars' mind, the year that Jesus begins his ministry. According to Gabriel, it's halfway through this final time when an anointed one is going to come and be cut off and shall have nothing three and a half from 27, and you get the time of Jesus' crucifixion. This is the cross of Christ, that the anointed one, the Messiah, is cut off not for himself, but for his people. It's through his death as the suffering king that he makes a strong covenant with many, ratifying the new covenant with the shedding of his blood, even as we are about to celebrate in just a few minutes. Sadly, though, we see it's the people of the prince the people of the Messiah, the Jews who destroy the city and the sanctuary themselves. Now, in an ultimate sense, Jesus what? He came and and John and he said, I am the temple. I am the true temple. And yet even if you destroy this temple after three days, I will rebuild it again. I will raise it up again. And in an ultimate sense, they committed the ultimate desecration of the temple by killing Jesus, their Messiah. But in an immediate sense, it was also the Jews who caused the destruction of their own immediate physical temple in A.D. 70. If you you ever at all a fan of history, you should read the works of Josephus. And in his book on the Jewish wars, he describes that time the rebellion of the Jewish zealots who raged against Rome and ultimately caused the wrath of a man named General Titus to become brought down among the city. Jerusalem was burned, the temple was destroyed, and it was never rebuilt again. And all of these things... All of these things, even as Jesus predicted would, would come in his own ministry, all of these things would have, left, would have left the people wondering what in the world was going on. And yet remember the purpose according to verse 24. The unfolding of these things was part of God's plan to bring about the ultimate jubilee. That is the putting away of sin and the establishment of righteousness through the saving work of his Messiah. 
though externally it looked as if chaos and desolations and war were bringing judgment again upon God's people. It was in fact Christ the Messiah who took the fullness of that judgment upon himself and brought to an end everything in Jewish life and culture that was pointing towards him and for which there was no more need. In the Lord of the Rings book, The Two Towers, Gandalf the White leaves his friends as they prepare to stand against the evil forces of Mordor at Helm's Deep. He leaves in order to find reinforcements for the battle. And the battle begins and Gandalf has not returned. The battle continues and Gandalf has not returned. There are no reinforcements coming. And then after four days of battle, the two kings are preparing to take their men into battle one last time. In the movie version, they're standing inside this fortress and through the castle wall. The beginnings of morning begin to creep in through the rays of the sun. And suddenly Aragorn, the promised king, remembers the promise that Gandalf had made to him before he left. He said, look to my coming at first light of the fifth day at dawn, look to the east. And as they begin to rush into battle, they in fact look to the east as the sun rises and suddenly there, framed by the glory of the morning sun, is Gandalf and the promised reinforcements and the battle is won. The forces of evil are turned aside. In the book of Daniel, Christ says through Gabriel, after the restoration of Jerusalem, after the 69th week, when all seems hopeless, look for me, your servant king who will offer up his life to complete the restoration of your exile. In the fullness of time, according to God's sovereign plan, he came in fulfillment of that promise. In fact, when we open up the New Testament, as it begins, who should come again to Israel but the same angel, Gabriel? Though this time he comes to a young woman named Mary explaining the time of the fullness of restoration has come. She would in fact carry and give birth to the Messiah who was promised long ago. Do you remember what the theme of Daniel is that we have seen time and time again? That the kingdoms of this world are sinful and transient and always fall under the weight of their sin. And what God's people need is an everlasting kingdom that will not fade away. What does Gabriel tell Mary that her son will accomplish? He says, your son will be great. He will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father Jacob. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Just 30 years later, Jesus stands in the synagogue ready for his turn at reading the scriptures. And he comes to Isaiah 61, which describes the promised future jubilee of salvation. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Luke tells us Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The promised final jubilee had come. God was faithful to his promises.
what was perhaps hazy for Daniel has been clear to us. God is faithful to his plan, bringing salvation not just to Israel, but through them to all the world. And therefore, because God has proven himself faithful, we should seek to put our faith in him. He is worthy of our faith. He is worthy of our faith as we believe the message of the gospel, taking hold of the salvation he has secured for us in Christ. He is worthy of our faith as we live a life of trust and dependence on his continued outpouring of grace as we seek to live for him, fighting sin, striving for holiness, making disciples. He is worthy of our faith as we call out to him in in prayer. Trusting that because we have been united to his son in faith, we ourselves have been adopted as his sons. Therefore, he is our heavenly father who delights to hear our prayers and delights to answer his children. God is worthy of our faith. Therefore, let us put our faith in him. Not once, not twice, but daily, moment by moment as we seek to be his people. Father, may that truly be who we are as your people, God. May we be a people of faith, trusting you. As we see the faithfulness that you have revealed time and time again across hundreds and thousands of years, Father, may we be reminded of who you are and what you have done for us. And God, as we seek to come then into your presence, as we seek to be with you, the God who is faithful, Father, may we see that We have not been faithful. We have been faithless. We deserve judgment and wrath, but you promise forgiveness and life. Oh God, may we be changed as we come before your presence, the presence of a faithful God. And Father, may that change, that realization of who you are, lead us to put our faith in you, to never waver, to never deviate, because you will always keep your promise. Father, that is our prayer this morning. We pray that you would answer it, not only for our good, but for your glory. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.